You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. And so as we turn our attention to our teaching time this morning, what I want you to do first is to remember the best starry night that you can remember. Kind of conjure that image in your mind. A night where you looked up and just had this moment of wonder at the beauty of the sky and the immensity of the galaxy around you. And I know that many of you are very cool people and have traveled to interesting parts of the globe, and I'm sure that the image in your mind right now is incredible. And there are some of you who, like me, grew up very rurally and surrounded by fields, And a star-filled sky was just kind of a part of your normal life. But as we all are collectively picturing this image in our minds of this starry night, I guarantee that a common theme running through them all is that it was in a remote part of the world where the surrounding lights of the cities and towns and buildings weren't interfering with the view and flooding the sky with its own artificial light. Because even though I was raised in a rural town where a starry night was common, I've spent the last 12 years of my life living near an urban center where you don't see a single star. And the only thing that dots the night sky is a street light or the occasional plane. Tyler Stanton, the unofficial sponsor of this prayer series, we've said his name a few times now, comments on this idea of a starry night and he says this, He says, isn't there a profound symbolism in the fact that our artificial lights drown out the heavenly ones? That unless you get a particularly clear night, we have found a way to darken the stars and a way to pretend that all we see on the ground is all that there is. And I read that and it immediately struck me because it so perfectly captures our tendency to dim the presence and magnitude of God in the world around us, and instead to magnify ourselves and whatever has managed to temporarily capture our affections. And so this morning, as we continue in our prayer series, we're going to talk about how prayer develops knowledge, a knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourselves, and how as we pray, we are dimming the lights that we have created so that we can see the true light of God, which helps us to know Him more and helps us know ourselves. And so those are our two main points, that prayer develops a knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourselves. And to do that, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And if you're using one of the hardcover Bibles in your pews, it is on page 571. So now hear the word of God from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as we read this scene, we see you on your throne. And yet far too often, our prayers sound like we are praying to someone as helpless as we are. Father, show us your majesty and your glory in this text this morning. Grow us, grow us in our knowledge of you so that we may see ourselves and so that we can pray with the fervency and the peace of a people who know you. Amen. And so as we are talking about how prayer develops a knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourselves, the first question we have to answer is what do we mean by knowledge? And so know that as we talk about knowledge, we are not just talking about knowing the facts. We don't just mean having an intellectual understanding of something. Instead, we are talking about an experiential understanding about a knowledge that comes from both facts and experience. For example, I can know, I can intellectually understand that a tomato is a fruit. And then from experience, no, it doesn't go well in a fruit salad. And many of you out there are history buffs, and you know so many incredible uh, facts about important dates and events and people and places. And if that is you, then I guarantee that along with learning these facts, you find yourself often reading accounts from people who lived through these events and who experienced them firsthand. And so as we talk this morning about our knowledge of God and self, we are not just on a theological fact-finding mission. That is an important venture. But the purpose of our time will be to probe what we are actually believing about God and about ourselves and how we are experiencing and living out that belief. And in particular, how this all impacts how we pray. And so now with a more clear understanding of what we mean by knowledge, let's take a look at how prayer helps develop a knowledge of God. 
And to do that, we're going to turn our attention to this text that we just read in Isaiah, where Isaiah experiences God in a truly profound way. And so we're just going to work right down through this text. We're going to make some observations. We're going to highlight and note a few things because it is important that we spend some time really sitting in this passage and trying to envision what is happening here. We can't just read through it and move on. We kind of kind of immerse ourselves in this scene. And so the first thing we note is the jarring opening in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And so we get a quick timestamp so we know about when this event is taking place. And then Isaiah sees God. And he has this moment where all intellectual knowledge he had of God, where every preconceived notion, every imagined thought was shattered as he beheld God's glory and grandeur before him. And it's important to realize here as well that Isaiah probably wasn't expecting this meeting. It probably wasn't on his calendar. Like he didn't wake up that morning and was like, all right, light morning workout, breakfast, meet with God in the temple. Like that probably wasn't on his daily itinerary. So this would come as a shock to him. And as the text continues, Isaiah begins to describe this scene with a description of the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filling the temple. And this image of God on a throne is an important one as it shows him as being the supreme ruler over all things. But then as we take careful note, God being on a throne with his robe filling the temple is about the only description of God's actual image that we get in this passage. Isaiah makes no further mention of God as he could not bear to look upon and put into words the holiness of God and could do nothing more in this moment than to look down at the floor and to avert his attention to these angelic seraphims in the room who are flying around and worshiping God. And these seraphims themselves are incredible. They are these six-winged angelic creatures. And if we look at verse 4, it is when they speak that the foundations of the threshold shook. And if you're like, what in the world is a foundation of a threshold? That's just a ton of syllables just jammed together. Just know it means that the whole place was shaken. And so imagine with me, if you will, for one moment that one of these creatures like Kool-Aid mans it through the wall, says something, and this whole place starts to quake. What would our collective reaction be? We may think we're brave, but we would all be beyond terrified. Yet these creatures cover and hide themselves before the Lord. And Isaiah makes specific reference that they cover their face and feet in the presence of God. These creatures, whom we would all cower before, could not bear to be uncovered before the Lord. And these creatures begin to cry out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The earth is full of his glory. And this holy, holy, holy refrain is another interesting part of this whole scene here. It's so prevalent, this phrase, in, in our worship music, that we can easily kind of miss the oddity of just three words like that stacked on top of one another. But if we started just to repeat three words back to back to back in conversation, we would start to get some strange looks from everyone else around us, right? That's not usually how we talk. But in the original language that Isaiah was written in, repetition is used to convey meaning. And oftentimes, words are repeated like this one after another to add impact. And so we can't think of holy, holy, holy as just this really great song lyric, but it is a profound statement that the Lord is most holy, that there is no one greater, there is no one more holy than him. And like the temple is filled with his robe, the earth is full and brimming with the glory of this holy God. And so this is what Isaiah sees. This is how Isaiah experienced the grandeur and the holiness of God. This is how Isaiah grew in his knowledge of God. And so now with this scene kind of freshly conjured in our minds, we should be asking, well, what does this have anything to do with us? How does this help us grow in our knowledge of God? And how in the world does this shape how we pray? Because I doubt that any of us have had this experience. What Isaiah describes in this passage is truly unique. And so is this just one of these moments in Scripture where we learn about how God has acted in the world? Or is this one of those prescriptive moments in Scripture where we are meant uh, to take what happens to Isaiah and try in some way to reenact it in our own life. And what I want to argue is that it's somewhere in between. On one hand, we should not expect that we're going to be going about a normal day, and God will give us this sudden and life-altering glimpse into his throne room. But on the other hand, We don't want to act and live as though God doesn't interact with us and that we can in no way experience his presence, power, and activity in the world. Because we can. Because there are ways to know and experience God. We know this. We talk about them all the time, such as through his word and through his people and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As he convicts us of of our sin, That is the way he works. As he bonds us together in fellowship with one another, that is the activity of God in our life. But a key way that we know and experience God is through prayer. As we pray, as we position ourselves as someone who is in desperate need of God, we are daily and routinely turning the lights down of our own contrived solutions, of our own self-importance, and we are beholding and communing with the God of the universe, who is far greater than we can ever imagine, and who can do far, far more abundantly than we ask or think. And so as we pray, as we seek God, we hold fast to the promise we have in James 4, 
where James tells us that as we draw near to God, he draws near to us. Not that he might draw near to us, not that if we're lucky, he'll think about drawing near to us, but as we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. So while we won't, like Isaiah, just be whooshed off into some temple and see God sitting on the throne, that probably won't happen to you. If it does, please let me know. I'd love to hear about it. We can still grow in our knowledge of him through prayer. And so now in looking back at our text, after Isaiah has this moment of experiencing the wonder of God, he is driven immediately to his knees. Because that is what the knowledge of God does. It drives us to our knees. And he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And so now that we've talked about how prayer leads to a knowledge of God, that knowledge of God will then lead to a knowledge of ourself. And so to do that, we're going to see how we are creatures who have been commissioned. We are creatures who have been commissioned. First, we are creatures. That phrase, woe is me, that Isaiah uses, isn't a phrase that we use often, or I don't use it often anyway. And when it's used in Scripture, it is a pronouncement of judgment on someone else. It is usually a woe to you. God will judge you. But what Isaiah is doing is that he is so overwhelmed by the holiness and magnificence of God that he is calling down judgment on himself. He is saying, woe is me. Judgment upon me. Theologian R.C. Sproul says this can be read as Isaiah was being ripped apart at the seams. Because as Isaiah sees the eternal God of the cosmos just arrayed before him, he became shockingly aware of his own impurity and finiteness, and that he was a creature created by this God sitting on the throne. And the artificial lights of his own self-importance were turned off, and he was nothing more than a street light staring at a star. And as Isaiah had this realization, so should we. It is so easy to begin to overestimate ourselves, to oversell our own importance, to treat God more like a business partner who needs the occasional check-in rather than our Lord. And that, friends, is a dangerous, dangerous way to think. Because as we overinflate ourselves, as we diminish God, as we try to blind ourselves to his holiness, we forsake the God of Scripture for a God that looks more and more like us. And friends, that is not a God worth following. That is not a God who will comfort you in the midst of deep pain and loss. That is not a God who governs the universe. That is not a God who has defeated the powers of sin and death to rescue you. And that is not one that you can pray to with any hope of an answer. And so this reminder of our creatureliness is not one of shame. It's not one to make you feel small and insignificant. 
Instead, it is to remind you and call you to dependence. Your dependence on this God who sits on the throne, who is immense and powerful and holy, and who loves you with a deeper love than you can ever fathom. And that is a God worth following. That is one who will bear the weight of your sorrow. That is one who not only hears your prayers, but who delights in answering them. That is a God worth following. And so that as we rest in our creatureliness, we can do so knowing he is our creator. And so let me ask, have you ever been so overwhelmed by the sheer grandeur and magnitude of God that you feel completely over your head? Where it hits you that the God you are lifting your prayers to is the one who spoke the universe into existence, who makes the nations rise and fall, who has existed eternally and who governs the entirety of the cosmos. Have you had a moment of, who am I that this God would hear me? And if you haven't, or if you haven't in a while, let me encourage you to pray and to ask God for those moments. And to read some passages of scripture before you pray that highlight God's power and glory and to spend some time meditating on them. Passages like this one here in Isaiah, or most of the Psalms, or Job 38 through 41. And see how these scriptures shape your prayer and help to remind you of your creatureliness, of God's greatness, and of your dependence on him. And so just as we are reminded that we are creatures, we are also reminded that we are commissioned. We are commissioned. As we keep reading this passage, just after Isaiah says, woe is me, and pronounces judgment on himself, one of these seraphim is sent from the Lord, touches a coal to Isaiah's lips, purifying him and preparing him for the call that God has for him. And so when God asked, who shall I send and who will go for us? it really seems to be more of a rhetorical question. I don't think there's a ton of other people in this room. As this whole event is Isaiah being set apart to be the mouthpiece of God and deliver his message to the nation of Israel. And again, while I don't think any of us have been purified by touching coals to our lips, on purpose anyway, what happens at the barbecue stays at the barbecue. I get it. But anyone who puts faith in Jesus has been purified by something far greater than a hot coal. They have been purified by the blood of Jesus. And if that's you, you have been redeemed, you have been washed clean, and you have been indwelt with the Spirit of God. What's so interesting in this passage is Isaiah says, judgment on me, woe is me. And God says, your sins are atoned for and you have been purified. That is a complete role reversal. And like Isaiah was called to give God's message to the people of Israel, so are you called and equipped 
to carry God's message to the nations and to live as the presence of God in your communities, seeking to be uh, the people of God who live lives for his glory and for his fame. And so as we think through how prayer helps develop a knowledge of ourselves, our prayer life will also tell us a lot about what we are believing about ourselves. How we pray is a good barometer of what we believe. And so as we speak of our creatureliness and of our commissioning, we can easily be at risk of overemphasizing one of them and neglecting the other. And so if your prayers are dominated by confession and going through great lengths to tell God of your sinfulness, so much so that your overwhelming emotion while you pray is just shame. You may be so consumed by your creatureliness that you are forgetting your commissioning. Yes, sin is damaging and destructive, and regular confession should be a part of the practice of every healthy Christian. But as a Puritan, Richard Sims reminds us, There is more grace in Christ than sin in us. And because of this faith, because of this grace, we can hold fast to the words and the promise of Jesus, for he promises his spirit to his followers to empower them to be his witnesses to the world. So yes, eagerly confess sin. Don't stop doing that. But also pray boldly for the Lord to work through you and in the lives of those around you, and rejoice as he does. But maybe some of you, in spending too, instead of spending too much time in this posture of confession, maybe you don't spend enough. And instead, the majority of your prayers are asking the Lord to act in the world and to intercede for others. And that is a great posture to have. But let me caution you in the other direction about not overemphasizing your commissioning that you forget your creatureliness, that you overlook your creatureliness. Don't become so fixated with laboring for the Lord that you fail at developing a sharp enough sense of your own shortcomings and areas of weakness. And instead, let the holiness of God continue to chip away these areas of sin as you confess your sin and as you labor for the Lord. And so now let me ask all of us, what does our prayer life say about our knowledge of God and our knowledge of ourselves? If we were to take an honest assessment, if we were to lay it all out on the table, put it all right there in front of us, would it seem like the God of this passage, the one who is seated on his throne, whose train fills the temple, would would it seem like this is a God that we are praying to? Or do we cram prayers in like we would a last-minute meeting, and do they sound like you're praying to someone who really doesn't care and you really aren't expecting an answer. Are you praying as someone who is both creaturely and commissioned? As someone who routinely confesses all of the ways you fall short of following God, 
but also rest in the purifying blood of Jesus and boldly approach the throne of God and ask him to use you as his hands and feet in the world. And it is usually at this point each week during our prayer series that we give you a new prayer tool in your tool belt to help you go home and to put into practice what we talked about that week. A very practical exercise for you to take home and do. But this week, as we wrap up the series, I don't just have one prayer tool to show you guys. Instead, I have a whole toolbox. And so I want to give you a review, more like an infomercial, of all the tools and exercises that we've given you so far through this series to help jog your memory, to help us grow in how we pray, and in light of our sermon this morning, to help us develop a knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourselves. And so looking back and kicking off the series, Matt called us to pray in pictures. This is a pattern of prayer that we see in the Psalms and is a helpful one for us to practice and to grow in different ways to pray. Next, we talk through how just two minutes of silence and solitude before our prayer can really help to quiet our thoughts and to help us be more attentive and astute to how the Lord is leading and directing us. We then learned how praying scripture can help expand our prayer vocabulary, and it helps us to keep our prayers rightly oriented as we are praying the words of Scripture itself. This was followed up by the prayer wheel. The prayer wheel lists 12 different types of prayers to keep our prayers balanced and to help with more extended periods of prayer. If you've ever tried to pray for a long time and like 10 minutes in, you're like, I have no idea what to pray for, the prayer wheel really helps with that. Uh, This tool, though, did come with the manufacturer warning of not just typing a prayer wheel into Google. If you do, you will get a very different result, and we do not condone that kind of prayer wheel. Instead, you can type in Christian prayer wheel and get a much more helpful result and much more helpful guidance. Next, Bob challenged us to memorize uh, the prayer of Mark 9.24, which simply reads, I believe, help my unbelief. A prayer that many of us find ourselves needing to pray often. Greg then reminded us of the importance of having a daily prayer rhythm, and that while prayer is so important and vital to our life, that it does take work. Mike called us to focus our prayers on the spiritual and to not limit our prayers to physical needs. Andrew challenged us to pray, Lord, what do you have for me in my suffering? Especially as we encounter extended seasons of pain and heartache. Matt then challenged us to pray Jesus-only prayers which means praying bold requests that only Jesus can answer. Our prayers too often are entirely too tame and entirely too safe, but we are called to pray boldly and confidently, knowing that all things are possible through Christ. And last week, Matt challenged us to fast, 
and from food if possible, but from other things if food is not possible, to help open our eyes to the reality of the spiritual forces in the world. And so church, these are your tools. And in hearing them all listed out like that, there was a probably one or two that you already gravitate toward. Maybe even a few of those that are already a part of your normal prayer life. And that is great. But let me challenge you to try out all of them. Much like actual tools that we use to fix and to build things with, they all serve a different purpose and are useful in different situations. And while you can fix a whole lot of things with a wrench and a pair of pliers, you can do a whole lot of good with those two tools. Sometimes you need a screwdriver. Sometimes you need a hammer. And occasionally you need YouTube. Probably the best tool of them all. And so take these prayer tools and use them. And while I get it, there's a lot here, it would be really hard to go home and incorporate them all at once. But begin to layer them in. Put them into practice just one at a time. Because the goal isn't for us to have a really great one or two months of prayer. The goal is for us to be a people of prayer. And if you need any more clarification or want to discuss any of these tools, please reach out to me, any of the elders, anyone on staff, or any leader here, and we would love to talk with you through this. And so as we close this sermon this morning and our whole prayer series, let me just end with one last plea for us to understand the importance and the privilege of prayer. I started off asking you all to imagine the most spectacular starry night of your life. And even on that night, when there was no other light distorting your view, when, when there wasn't a cloud in the sky, while you could see those stars so clearly and it probably felt like you could reach out and grab one, those stars were still impossibly far away. They are light years upon light years upon light years from us. And as far as those stars are away from us, there is an even greater divide between us and God. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has bridged that divide. And so God is not far. He is close. And this God that we read about in this passage in Isaiah, the one enthroned on, in the world, has kicked open the gates and has welcomed us to approach him with boldness and confidence and joy and excitement and relief as a child approaches their father. And church, that is what our prayers should sound like. And far too often they don't. And so as we go into our weeks, as we acclimate to the hustle and the bustle of the fall season, as we busy our time with school and sports and everything in between, let us do so as a people of prayer who seek to draw near to God, knowing that he will draw near to us. Let's pray. Father, what a gift it is to pray to you and know that you listen. 
a gift that we so often neglect and think so commonplace that we can commune with the God of the universe. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit work in us to make us deeply aware of your holiness and goodness and of our complete dependence on you. And let that dependence drive us to joyous and bold prayer as your children. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.